Good afternoon, everybody. I just uh, want to speak briefly to uh, introduce this afternoon's uh, conversations. First, somebody put a, uh, a question in the bell or, uh, about uh, to, to say uh, maybe a little bit more about the silence, the, the, the point of keeping silence and uh, maybe something about the technique, so to speak, of keeping silence. By now, we've been silent for a little while and maybe I don't need to explain why there's a virtue in it. Maybe you already experienced the, uh, that there's a different kind of access you have to your own thoughts and feelings when you're in a space of silence, when you're not required to uh, perform, but just be with yourself. Um, the question specifically uh, asks about eye contact. You know, in, or, ordinarily uh, it's rude to go by somebody without either saying hello or making eye contact. But in this situation, part of keeping the silence is that we not necessarily uh, engage in eye contact when we pass each other. But uh, being in silence together, the point of it is not that we're all going to kind of withdraw into our private realms, pretending as if the other people didn't exist. That's not the idea. The idea is that we're, we're sharing the silent space together. So there is a sense when we pass each other that we understand and we feel the presence of the other person in passing. And inside we welcome that encounter, but we don't necessarily look up, say anything, make a gesture. We just allow, it's kind of nice, isn't it, to allow, oh, it's all right, I'm in the world, you're in the world. Isn't that wonderful? We don't really have to do anything about that, but we can just enjoy that without the need to uh, make something more of it. So that's the spirit of the silence. Also, as I think we, we will, uh, we're about to experience, the fact that we're spending so much time in silence together, I think will have an important conditioning, conditioning effect on the kinds of conversations that we have. And that is a really important part of this retreat to have a kind of conversation that really is not possible to have without having that conversation be surrounded by silence and even infused with silence in the middle of the conversation. And I hope we'll have a chance to experience that uh, this afternoon. So uh, Edith and Gary are going to make short presentations uh, for the purpose of getting us energized and interested in a particular conversation. And they're also going to, Gary's going to set up for you ground rules for the conversation. And, and my job now is to just put a little bit of a, a framework around this whole, uh, uh, not only the conversation, but the whole kind of theory behind the retreat and the experience that we've had behind the retreat. But first of all, uh, just to say that I hope you're all enjoying your meditation practice. I hope it's, you find it interesting, uh, peaceful, useful in a lot of ways. Meditation, to me, is very pleasant. Uh, very few things, actually, I would rather do 
because uh, it's nice to meditate. Peaceful, sweet. Everybody knows, you know, now uh, that not only that, but meditation is really good for you, right? Everybody knows that. <laughs> a lot of studies show you that it lowers your heart rate, you lower your blood pressure. You know, you won't get a heart attack so soon if you if you meditate. Uh, and then uh, somebody just sent me the other day a Wall Street Journal article which shows that these Tibetan meditating Tibetan monks have more, I think, gamma, yeah, gamma rays or something like that. Anyway, they're <laughs> happy, happy waves, yeah, not rays, waves. Ha- happy, happy gamma waves in their brains um, more than the other, there are other kinds of waves that are not so happy, you know, but the gamma waves. So happiness, no heart attacks, and so forth. Meditation is really good. So, and I don't have to convince anybody of that. You're all here because you know that. And also you read it in the paper. Um, but the trouble is, as you also all know, that it's nice to have a little calm. But then when you have to go back into your uh, busy, possibly uh, complicated, difficult lives, quite often the meditation quickly goes out the window and, you know, you, there you are in the maelstrom again and then you, you're wishing for a time maybe later on when you can go back and have a little bit more peace, but it's a little bit like taking medicine, you know, it works for a while and then it doesn't and then back and forth and back and forth. So how do we uh, deal with this, you know, how do we... Uh, how do we find a way to go back into the crazy world and somehow bring with us the meditation practice? And James, I think, was saying this this morning, and I I found this to be true in my own experience as well, that if you have a regular ongoing meditation practice over time, you find that inevitably it begins to infect the rest of your life. It begins to have an influence on the way that you feel about your life and experience your life. You uh, have maybe a different sense of yourself and how to handle yourself. You have a little bit different sense, uh, almost the texture of the way you encounter and relate to others is different. Maybe the pace at which you do things changes slightly. Maybe your values uh, become a little bit different. Maybe you, you change the habits that you had before, and maybe your goals are even different over time as, as an influence of the meditation practice. And so we've, in our working group, uh, Bay Area working group, been discussing this and come, kind of thinking of this in terms of the meditative perspective. In other words, not the meditation practice, but the whole set of viewpoints attitudes and ways of thinking and being that seem to arise out of the meditation practice. We're calling uh, the meditative perspective. And our whole purpose has been to have a series of explorations and conversations trying to figure out how would that meditative perspective specifically and in detail operate to help reduce our difficulties in working as lawyers. This morning, uh, I just want to repeat very briefly uh, James's four points because I thought they were really great uh, points to give you a sense of the, the real meat of the meditative perspective. 
that you would have a sense of clear seeing. You'd know what it was like to see things and not be too much confused by your emotional reactions to them. You'd have the capacity and the interest in being present with things the way they are and what you're experiencing and what other people around you are experiencing. You would see how everything changes all the time. Mental states, situations, always changing. And you would have uh, an interest in and the capacity not to be so caught uh, by your judgments. You would be able to you know, go beyond that and make decisions and, and do things. So this is, in a way, you could say these, these points that James gave us this morning are a kind of foundation for the meditative perspective, maybe the most universal way of describing the meditative perspective. And if you were listening to what he said this morning, I, I, w- I would guess that you had a lot of thoughts about, gee, you know, if I really saw those things, if I really, if those things were, those points were things that were part of my life every day, I could see where that would really make a big change in the way I, w- I worked as a lawyer or even the way I was as a husband or uh, wife, mother, father, son, daughter, cousin, brother, sister in the world. One of the things that we uh, came to quite quickly in our conversations is, this is not easy. In other words, it's not just meditate a little bit and then sally forth, you know, in happiness and bliss. In fact, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty complicated. Uh, the world and life situations uh, for anybody, but particularly in work as a lawyer, present tremendous challenges uh, to this possibility. And so uh, our conversations have been all about what are the real problems and issues and how could we find a way in actual, and and we we spoke quite personally, uh, real situations that were coming up for us in our work lives. How could the meditative perspective help in this way or that way? How could we change the way that we conceive of our work and change the way we work? What, what would be the most effective ways? What are the pivot points you know, where an application of these things would most transform our work? So my, my view is that, you know, as I said I think last night, uh, whenever it was, uh, I think last night, we meet once a month and we sit together and we have these pretty organized conversations and that itself becomes a kind of practice. In other words, to have those conversations regularly, to take what we learn from those conversations and try to apply them directly in our work, come back to the conversations over and over and over again, not to fool ourselves or anybody else about the degree of difficulty and the amount of application this takes. That ongoing process, I think, itself becomes a kind of spiritual practice. And our purpose now is to share that practice with you, to actually bring you into the conversation in somewhat like the same way that we have it ourselves. And, and to see what it's like for you to engage in this process and see if you can also, as we've been beginning to do, discover how uh, the meditative perspective can actually 
be an important and transformative tool for you uh, to work in the law. So that just gives you some sense of, you know, the shape of this and, and, the, and the rationale behind it. So I'll turn it over to uh, I think Edith is first. You, you have mics. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the first topics that um, our group um, focused on in um, examining the, the problems and challenges of uh, working in the legal profession was language, uh, speech, and listening. And that's the topic that Gary and I are going to present today. Um, I'm going to speak just very briefly about speech and language, and Gary's going to talk about um, listening. But in, in all of the conversations that we had, um, it became very apparent that while we were we had picked a topic and we attempted to stay on on topic, um, that really our conversations were iterative. That is, um, speech and language and listening are so huge. There are so many parts to it that um, we found we would come back to the topic over and over and over again. And every time we came back to it. We went in a different direction. We explored it a little bit uh, in, in a different way. We went deeper in some respects. We went um, in different directions. So um, in um, uh, what, what I'm going to attempt to do is kind of um, raise for you some of the questions and challenges that we have been grappling with. Um, and uh, then we'll all go grapple together, I guess. Um, I, just to say say a word about what brought me into um, a meditation practice, because for me, this was uh, language and, and speech was key for me. Um, I uh, uh, was a, a a nurse and then a wife and then a mommy uh, before I started practicing law. So at the time that I started practicing law, I really had a pretty well developed. Uh, nurturing side, compassionate, soft, nurturing side. Uh, and then I started practicing law as a litigator. And um, it, it was just a major culture shock for me. And uh, I was off balance for years. And um, I believed at the time that I had to somehow submerge who I really was and armor myself with a persona that I thought was uh, a warrior-like persona that litigators were supposed to have. Um, the result was uh, multidimensional. One was that I was really unpleasant to be around, <laughs> especially at work and especially if you were opposing counsel. I was, I, I was unpleasant on the inside, and I know I was really unpleasant on the outside. And the other thing that, that happened is over um, a fairly short period of number of years, the internal pain for me just became excruciating. And I, I finally reached a point where I, I, I was reaching for the doorknob to my office one day, and I just thought, the pain is so great, I can't do this anymore. There's got to be a different way, a better way for me to do this. 
And it was that that sort of that definitely propelled me. That was a driver for me to um, begin this exploration. And for me, um, and I think probably for all of us, language is what we do. That's what we use. That's our medium. And so for me, um, coming into an awareness of what why speech is about, uh, beginning to connect the true me with how I was expressing it and manifesting it um, was um, essential. And it was language and speech was the the portal for me to to start that journey. So um, in our our that's what brought me here. This is why this this particular topic is is of such deep interest for me. Now. Um, we started with, with some, we, we had to sort of set some understandings or, or get, create some common understandings. Um, one is that we've talked about here already is that um, words are not our experience. Words can express our experience to some degree, but words can't hold our, our complete experience. I mean, uh, it's hard to describe in words what you experience when you sneeze or in an orgasm, how can you, you can't express it in words. It's an experience that's different than the language. Um, one of the other basic understandings that we uh, uh, started with was that we work in an adversarial system. And uh, the adversarial system that we work in seems to emphasize winning over truthfulness finding truthfulness. There is an assumption, uh, and the the beginning assumption is that in an adversarial system, the truth will emerge. It will somehow rise to the top. But uh, my personal experience in doing litigation is um, that's not usually how it, that's not my experience. I don't know about you, but that's not my experience. It's it's winning seems to um, uh, overtake it. And the, and the third thing is that um, our agency relationship to the work we do really adds a level of complexity to um, our work. We, in representing uh, somebody else's interest, speaking on their behalf, somebody else's behalf, um, I find for myself that I am occasionally drawn into um, expressing positions, expressing uh, myself in a way that I would really be uncomfortable with if, if I were speaking on my own behalf. So um, there's, there's that level of complexity that is, um, I think it underlies it. It's, um, we need to, to be aware of it. Um, in terms of wise speech, the, the, the three sort of pillars of wise speech, as I understand it, are, are truthfulness, is this true? Um, is it kind? Is it beneficial? Is it non-harming? I sort of lump those together. And the third one is, is it timely? Are we saying it in a timely fashion? And the two that uh, resonate most strongly for me are um, truthfulness, the issue of truthfulness in, in what we say and how we say it. And um, is it possible to work in an adversarial system in, which emphasizes winning in a way that is non-harming, that's, that's kind, that's beneficial, that's compassionate. Um, 
and for me personally, the, the sec that is probably the biggest challenge that, that uh, I face. In, in terms of truthfulness, um, some of the, the issues, we came back to this several times, some of the issues that we wrestled with um, went over and over are, well, what is truthful? It's a huge topic. It obviously, uh, uh, there's no way that one can express the entire truth about anything. Um, there is, there's simply too many factors um, to include or not include. Um, we spoke kind of briefly about perjury. I mean, um, okay, uh, no, none of us wants to commit perjury or allow a client to commit perjury. Now that's, is it a high standard or a low standard? Um, to, to start with, it seems like, oh, okay, well, okay, as long as I stay on this side of the line, then I'm, I'm okay. Well, uh, my, my own experience with this is uh, the more uh, meditative experience that I have, the more challenging that particular um, standard becomes because I, uh, truthfulness, for me, I've ratcheted up in my own, in my own mind. Um, we talked a lot about the difference between persuasion and manipulation. Um, persuasion, making the, the strongest argument, um, using the, the best facts that you can gather and presenting them in the strongest way you can is um, a good thing. That's a good thing in our system. But when does that slip over into manipulation? And what is manipulation? Um, it, does it have sort of a deceptive quality to it that um, you're maybe exploiting some facts that um, uh, are just a little bit shaded one way or another? How, where, where does that come in? How does that happen? Where does that happen? And how do you know when you've moved from this side to that side? Um, we talked a lot about that. Um, uh, as, I, as I said uh, a moment ago, we also talked about, uh, spent some time talking about um, using language in a way that's, that's non-harmful. Uh, is there a way to be a zealous advocate and uh, represent your, your, your client's interest um, uh, zealously and do it in a way that's non-harming. This is probably particularly difficult if, if we're in litigation, um, but in negotiations as well. I, uh, this, this issue comes up um, over and over again. I know for, it certainly does for me. Um, so, so the question, if, if the ad hominem argument um, could actually win the outcome that you're looking for, does that justify it? Um, and if not here, is there ever a point where the stakes are so high that it is justified? Um, and then if, if for me in particular, I can tell you that um, I get extraordinarily reactive 
when they're coming at me, those kinds of um, uh, what feel like attacks are coming to me, coming toward me, I get extremely reactive very quickly. And um, so, and I've had a, a situation this spring where I had a um, opposing counsel who not only had a reputation for being really obnoxious, but um, he demonstrated it over and over and over again in our interactions. And um, we had two really unpleasant interactions, one in, one in court uh, out, outside uh, in the hallway and one over the telephone. And he was, um, you know, accusing me of all kinds of things and my client and, you know, on and on and on and not letting me get a word in edgewise and accusing me of dominating the, you know, the, you know those conversations. And I was so reactive, so upset, so angry for so long. And then I thought, okay, what am I going to do about this? I can't do anything about what just happened. What I can do is prepare for what is, I'm pretty sure is going to happen in the future. And so I, I gave it some thought. And the, the uh, next time that we um, were in court together, he, he approached me before the hearing began and, and asked me if I'd like to, to step outside and have a conversation. And I said... Um, I'm quite willing to have a conversation with you, but the first time that anyone is attacked for any reason, I'll walk away. And um, he kind of stepped back, he took and, and looked at me for a moment, and he walked away. And we have not had any conversations since then. We have exchanged a lot of letters, but we have not talked. Um, and that's fine with me because uh, I, I, I just get too reactive to that. Um, one, of, one of the issues that we talked about is um, how, so how to maintain respect. Non-harming, uh, one, one of the elements of non-harming is respect, and that's probably the, the biggest one. That's um, the one that we talked about quite a bit. When you've got that bomber on the other side, um, uh, th- that, that for me is so difficult. Uh, um, we talked, um, you know, we talked about a lot of things, and I think I better quit right now and let Gary's, uh, Gary take the next piece. Um, the, the topic is so large that uh, we've spent hours discussing it, um, and uh, I, I think I speak for everybody when I say we have not plumbed the depths yet. So I've been listening very patiently because my job is to talk about listening. <laughs> A contradiction right there. I wanted to say that one thing is uh, that's been most powerful to me of our work together, the Bay Area Group, and that is there's almost always a parallel between the substance of the conversation that we're having and the way we're talking about the thing that we're talking about um, that uh, puts us in a position of often recognizing that we're uh, sometimes at odds or contradicting the ideas that we're talking about with the way we're talking about it. Um, And that brings us up pretty short because um, we, in a protected, supportive setting, trying to find a way for us to have a conversation that is congruent with the ideas that we believe in and, and so passionately, um, it's very challenging. 
but it's also very exciting to notice when we're not living what we're talking about. Um, so listening. Um, in some ways, this is really simple. You know, just listening. Uh, and what we have discovered is that the observation, um, our ability to observe ourselves is absolutely critical to determining what options we have in terms of what we listen to and how we listen. Um, and when we look at ourselves and notice how we behave in relationship to the choices we make around listening, it's not always pretty. Um, and some of that has to do with our, uh, the lawyer world that we come from and the conditioning that we've had in the lawyering world. Um, one of the conditions I have is thinking about, well, as a lawyer, I'm working when I'm talking. If I'm doing something else, I must not be working. Um, judges don't tend to reward great listeners. <laughs> um, competitive conversations um, seem to be the kind of, uh, that's, that's what, how most conversations take place. And it's not just in the courtroom. It's in our personal lives. It's in our conversations with the people we work with. It's in, it seems to be quite pervasive to just be in the mode of kind of making a better point and kind of, if we're going to listen, to kind of use that as fodder to make the next best point. Um, so the question then is, well, why listen in a world that rewards, doesn't seem to reward listening at all? Why listen at all? And, and, and uh, it's a hard answer. <laughs> Uh, but part of it is to understand and that we're so used to the currency of the power of persuasion and coercion as the, the kind of the tools of how we operate that to bring this whole reorientation to recognize that there is power and understanding um, is uh, very challenging but really quite important because it really gives us a sense of how much more or at least as much, understanding can do to help people, which is what we're trying to do when they're in conflict with each other, as trying to beat them down. Um, so what's to listen to? Um, there's always the other. There's ourselves. Um, and there's the world. Uh, in terms of listening to the other, that's often quite important with our clients, other lawyers, a whole range of situations. Uh, but the first thing with the self, and it's kind of paradoxical, is to listen to ourselves. We need to, we have to have some sense of um, how to get ourselves out of the way uh, of a lot of conversations, of the ability to really hear somebody else. And we are often find ourselves right in the way of being able to be. Uh, uh, actually able to clearly hear somebody else's point of view. Um, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Listening to the world is a very interesting part of it. Um, Norman's reminded us sometimes, you know, if you just listen to the sound of a bird, something beyond what you're talking about, something that reminds you that um, you are not, or we are not, uh, the center of the world. Um, is often quite helpful to kind of broaden the context of any 
task that we undertake in any conversation, and particularly when we're trying to listen to somebody else. Um, how we listen. Um, the goal is, and this is one of those things, again, I, James told us this morning, easy to say, hard to do, to listen with an intention of an open mind and a heart. And um, the, the execution is so hard. What gets in the way? Screens and filters of all kinds. Um, they're the lawyer screens. One lawyer screen is client talks. We listen to it. What's the legal problem? Um, what are the facts? We have a very narrow frame here that keeps us focused in a way that makes it very hard. A feeling comes in, sorry. That's kind of in the way right now of what we're doing. Could we do something about that? Kleenex, timeout, whatever it would take. Um, but we're here to get that, get down to what your problem is. And, it's a, and we're looking at it through the screen of the, of, of, of the law. Um, and being a lawyer. Um, and of course, the legal frame is a very powerful one in terms of its effect on us. And again, narrows our openness to somebody else's view. I remember as a mediator, um, early on in my mediation career, uh, people came in, one person said they wanted a divorce, the other one said they didn't. Immediately the thing that goes on in my mind is, well, in this state you get one, if you want one. Um, there's no problem. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, there I am with my kind of, you know, my little screen that's just kind of keeping me from seeing, well, maybe they want to, mediate that. Uh, maybe they don't. But again, it's my whole bias and screen that keeps me from even seeing what I could do and what they want. Um, then there's the old right-wrong framework. That helps a lot to really see broadly. <laughs> um, and of course, we just bring that into all of our conversations. It's almost impossible not to. If we're not going to be competitive, at least we have this view of, okay, well, let's just figure out who's right here. And of course, what that does is it, again, narrows people's worlds and actually doesn't often reflect our real understanding uh, and the broader picture of what's more deeply true than one person being entirely right and the other person being entirely wrong. Um, so those are some of the, com the screens that come and filters that come from being a lawyer and the law. And then there's me. Um, I bring my own screens. One of the screens I bring is if somebody says something that's really kind of different than the way I want them to talk or that I find is really threatening in some way, I'm going to hear it, if I can, in some way as confirmation of what I already know about how the world works. Um, and so that, uh, if I do that, that often kind of misses the point here of what the person is saying, they're saying something quite differently, and that will just keep me focused on keeping my worldview intact, but missing what in fact um, might be a very interesting and very important difference. Uh, and then there's judgments. Um, James talked about that this morning very powerfully, and I'm not gonna say a lot about those, but they tend to put people in boxes that make us comfortable. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples of ones that got me in trouble. Um, the first mediation I had with a big corporation, I just went into it with this idea that corporations have no soul. Um, and it's all about, for them, maximizing profits, bottom line, 
and that's, that's all that matters. Um, and of course what happens bringing that set in um, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I expect them to behave that way, so they behave that way. I don't see that there's something more there that they could be bringing to it, um, and uh, even if there were, and there might not be, but there might be. And as a matter of fact, in that case that I had, it turned out there was, and it took me having to kind of put my little blinders aside to see, no, these are people, and they're things that they care about, and they're things that animate this, comp this company that, that, that make a big difference to them. Um, two last things. Uh, the, and one other kind of example of how this works in terms of the listening. I had a uh, divorcing couple, uh, this is two days ago, um, where she comes in and says, um, makes a big concession, gives up separate property, says, I'm willing to throw that into the pot. I'm there sitting very pleased to kind of hear how generous she's being. He responds and he says, that's great. And I want um, uh, money for the time I put into fixing up the house in addition to um, half of the house. And he goes through this whole explanation about how she's not recognized him and he wants a lot more than uh, she's talking about. Immediately what goes on in my mind is he's overreaching. Um, bam, the blinders go on. I see him as an overreaching person. I don't say it, but what's so interesting is there's a point at which I must have said something. I don't quite actually know what it was. He says, you're not being neutral. Well, of course, what I want to do is defend myself. <laughs> of course I'm being neutral. I didn't say a thing here. Um, and what was true was, and in the moment, and I do credit my, our group um, and this work with helping me in the moment, which is to be defensive, I was, but actually a little less defensive than I was interested in knowing what it was that he was seeing. So I was able to kind of put it aside instead of saying, no, I'm not being neutral. Let me understand from you what it is you're seeing here. And he said it. And I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. Um, and what was so interesting, and I said, so let me really make sure that I do understand you and understand. And, it was, and what was clear was I completely misunderstood uh, something very fundamental in his view. And when I understood it, um, it really changed. Actually, it helped her understand, and it helped me understand, and it actually helped him decide once he was understood, and this is the power of understanding, he didn't have to hold on to that anymore the way he had. Um, and so it was actually something that changed the whole in the interaction for all of us. Last point, um, and obviously, as Edith said, this is the barest scratching of the surface. Uh, Norman has this uh, wonderful thing that he, he says to, to, to mediators, which is, you know, the, ans the answer to all this is the question is, are you motivated? Are you motivated to really be there for people, to be compassionate, to be there with an open mind and a heart? And he suggests to us as mediators, and I think this could apply to lawyers as well, is to just take a moment before you sit down in the chair to just say, you know, this is a big deal. I'm going to honor the chair that I'm sitting in and recognize the gravity of the problems that people bring to me before I sit in that chair and realize that when I do that, in some ways it's a sacred commitment I'm making to myself and the people that I'm working with, that I really am there to try 
to hear them beyond my screens, beyond my prejudices, beyond my biases, with as open a mind and heart as I can create in the moment. So um, here's what we want to do now. This was just really meant to prime the pump. Um, uh, we want you to be able to have conversations. As Norman suggested before, um, we're hoping um, <laughs> you won't fall into a lot of the traps we fall into, <laughs> um, that it will be a different conversation. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the things that's so interesting, it took us a while as a group to realize that we couldn't just get together and just start talking because we could assume we were all having the, this shared uh, commonality. And we realized that we needed to mediate, meditate before we talked. And when we did, it made a huge difference in our conversations. I can't tell you exactly why, but I know that it made a huge difference and we all felt it. So we're hoping that that's what your experience will be now as you move into these small groups. You're going to have a chance to talk with um, just uh, five other people, all of you. Um, and what we'd like you to do is, with this kind of backdrop, about what Edith and I have been talking about, which is speech or expression um, and listening, um, the two components of communication. We want you to focus um, on a, a question and to be able to answer the question. And the question is, um, what's the, what's the, what's the what are the challenges for you as a lawyer or as a professional or as a law student, what are the challenges for you in communicating with other people professionally? What are the challenges for you? And we're going to give you a little help to do this. We're going to give you a tool that we find enormously valuable in mediation uh, work and also in our interaction with each other, which is it's a listening tool. And probably most of you know this already, but we're going to give you a chance to, to use the skill if you already know it. If you don't, I'll describe it to you. It's, we call it, in mediation, looping. Um, it's sometimes referred to as active listening, or reflective listening, or mirroring. But what it really is, is not just listening to somebody else. It's demonstrating to the person who spoke, um, who's speaking, that it's proving to them, to their satisfaction, that you have understood what they've said. So what happens is, they speak, and then your job is to reflect back to them, not all the great ideas you have about what they should be thinking, um, not um, something about what they could do with what they're doing, um, not some great advice for them, but to reflect back simply to understand, to show that you understand what they've said. And this is not the same as just memorizing the words they've said and proving that you're uh, terrific, um, you've got great recall. It's actually taking the risk of using your own words to try to capture your best understanding of what that person is trying to communicate to you and to use those words, your words, that you think best capture that. And when you do that, that to recognize that people are speaking from their minds, but they also might be speaking from their hearts too. So you may need to kind of loop back to them, not just the ideas of what they're saying, but the feelings as well, because that's often a significant part of the communication. So then what you do is you loop it back, and the reason we call it a loop is then you ask them, did I get that right? And they say, yes. 
The loop is complete. You did it. They say no. Then you don't say, no, no, I got it right. Let me explain to you. You just <laughs> uh, No, you say, tell me what I missed. And then they tell you what you missed. And then you reflect that back. And then you say, did I get it right now? And they say, yep, loop is complete. If not, you keep doing it until they say that you have completed the loop. A couple of coaching tips. One, sometimes people speak in paragraphs or pages rather than sentences. And you're sitting there trying to remember everything they've said, and you're just feeling like you're on overload. So you, it's perfectly permissible to, and as a matter of fact, advisable to interrupt them at that moment that you have feel like you kind of got it and you're just going to go uh, away or get overloaded if you keep going. Excuse me, I just want to be sure I've understood what you've said so far. And then reflect that back to them. And it's perfectly polite to interrupt in this way. We're breaking social norms all over the place here by not talking for a long time. This is one more to break. You're going to interrupt them for, that, for the purpose of showing them you understand them. And then they're going to reflect it. Uh, and then, and then you, know, you, you uh, see whether you got it right. That's the idea of doing the loop, um, of doing the reflecting back until they say you've got it. One of the things I think you'll find that's interesting if you haven't done this before is there, the person is having a conversation with you, but they're also having a conversation with themselves. And our experience is that when we do this well, it really helps people deepen their own understanding of what it is they're trying to say. So um, any questions about this technique or how you're going to be doing it? And I'm going to ask you to do it in about 10 seconds. Questions? Yes. No, no, that's later. Yeah, this is just going to be, you're just going to do one other person, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to tell you how we'll do the fives. So this is just, find somebody in the room that you don't know, and then we're just going to ask you to take two minutes. And the first question, and one of you, you decide who's A and who's B. A says to B, tell me what you find challenging in terms of your communications when, as a professional. And then the person answers, and they go for a couple of minutes. We will tell you when then to switch, and then it will be B answering the question, and, the, and A will be asking the question. Okay? Two minutes for the first for the first person to be fully understood, for the loop to be complete, and then we'll tell you when to switch. Find somebody you don't know, um, and and then just sit opposite them, and then you can begin. Is a question? Apologize to them and say, blame it on us. <laughs> You'll have a chance later.
So we are all together. We're all together.
Warm up, and now we've done another warm up, and now we're going to do another warm up. 